Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Welcome back to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week we'll be looking at the fortunes of President Obama, with the midterm elections looming on November the 2nd. In a speech given yesterday in Cleveland, the US President outlined his economic plans and said he would stand by his promise to fight for an extension of tax breaks for the majority of Americans, but not for the top-earning 2%. We'll be asking whether this is enough to save the Democrats in the midterm elections. We'll also be hearing about the formation of Australia's first minority government in over 60 years, We'll hear from the FT's Paris correspondent Ben Hall about the strikes and protests that have greeted efforts to raise the French retirement age. The retirement age of 60 is is what the French call an acquis social. It's like a social right, an essential achievement of François Mitterrand, the only socialist president in in the 1980s. And finally, we'll be looking at the latest political scandal here in Britain and the pressures on Andy Coulson, the Prime Minister's press secretary, to resign. I'm joined in the studio by Richard McGregor of the FT, by Ben Fenton, who's the FT's media correspondent, and joining us on the line is Ed Luce from Washington. Ed, looking at the midterm elections from across the Atlantic, it looks like pretty unadulterated bad news for President Obama and for the Democrats. Are they going to lose heavily, do you think? I think that's the overwhelming probability, yes. And, And the key thing here is the levels of energy on each side. If you look at the primary races that each party held to in each of the states and all of the states to uh, select their nominees, their candidates, the turnout on the Republican side was way, way higher by a factor of several million voters um, than, than they had on the Democratic side. And that's always been a pretty iron cast lead indicator. The party that gets the turnout is the party that wins. And the gap, the enthusiasm gap between the two is so great, it's very, very hard to see what in the next seven weeks is going to turn that around. And what's gone wrong for President Obama? How much should he be blaming himself? Is it simply that there's a bad economy and any incumbent would be suffering, or has has he made uh, tactical errors? I think it's a combination of the two. In terms of the tactical errors, there's a a growing focus on just how big a mistake it was uh, at the beginning of his term in January, February of 2009 um, to, uh, first of all, keep the stimulus to a relatively low level. And secondly, the composition of that stimulus was very much all the favorite democratic projects, rather than the kinds of things economists were recommending that would really generate uh, a much higher levels of demand uh, in the U.S. economy. And, and today, 18 months on, as that stimulus begins to run out and as the U.S. gross number declines with it, a lot of people are ruining that huge missed opportunity. That That's probably of a larger scale than a tactical error. It's a strategic error. And what are the themes the Republicans are hammering him on? Are they taking him on, on on the deficit being too large, on high unemployment, or is it more the kind of cultural issues that seem to fire up their base? Uh, the cultural issues have certainly played a role, and the mosque in New York, I think, has um, fired up uh, parts of the base. And again, the president didn't help himself by intervening on that and then appearing to row back when there was a huge 
Twitter-led Sarah Palin response to his very uh, sort of middle, middle ground comments on the mosque. But I think the primary motivating factor amongst the Republican base and amongst the Tea Party movement activists who've so fueled this race is economic. And it's a very American belief that the problems have been caused by too much spending rather than too little. Um, and the government is inherently um, both incompetent and, and corrupt. And that Obama symbolizes this elitist bicoastal view that, that is un-American, um, that government is the solution, not the problem. Uh, and uh, President Obama has attempted to try and steal some of the Republicans' clothes this week by proposing very, very mainstream center-right ideas like extending uh, the tax credit for research and development, and like giving uh, front-loading depreciation tax breaks for business investment. And to his surprise and chagrin, uh, the Republicans have not only rejected these ideas once their own, have also portrayed them as more spending and as a second stimulus. Stimulus has become a dirty word. It is not used by the Obama administration. So the GOP are pouring that word on them. And so the president finds himself and the Democratic Party finds itself in a position where it can't even win the war of, of terms and definitions. It's, it's a, a very bleak moment for Democrats. You mentioned the Tea Party earlier. I mean, they make great headlines, but are they as important as, as people say? Are they really a new factor in US politics? I don't think they're a new factor. I think whenever there's a, a, a crisis in America, whether it's internal and economic or whether it's external, uh, um, you know, as you saw in the 1950s with the communist threat and, and McCarthyism, there is this uh, right-wing, what the French would call Pujadist tendency in American politics to attack elites and attack the state and to try and spread a climate of suspicion. And there's certainly that element to the Tea Party movement. So it's not new in American history, um, but it's certainly um, a big factor this time round. Uh, and we haven't seen this kind of right-wing populism for 15 or so years. It's certainly a big factor in this election in terms of motivating people to come and vote. I suspect, and I think many uh, you know, more seasoned commentators than me suspect that after the election, should the Republicans take control of Congress, then the candidates that have been elected by the, the Tea Party, the big Tea Party names like Rand Paul in Kentucky and, uh, and, and people like Marco Rubio in Florida, will become a liability for the Republican Party and, and civil war within that party will quickly ensue. It will be a Pyrrhic victory for the Republicans because it will be a very unruly party. Final question. A lot of people this weekend will be looking at the anniversary of 9-11, which may be unusually heated this year because of the demonstrations against the planned mosque that we were talking about earlier and also this uh, plan by a hitherto little-known pastor in Florida to start burning the Quran. I think that's going to be a factor, though. It's interesting to see that with the Quran burning, that you know, e even some of the more um, populist right-wing Republicans like Sarah Palin are now condemning it. Uh, the fact that General David Petraeus, 
who is an icon on the right and and in the middle and on the left, uh, some parts of the left as well, who is, of course, in charge of U.S. military operations in Afghanistan. The fact that General Petraeus came out and condemned the plan, the Koran burning, has, I think, um, taken a, a large amount of the sting out of it. It could have sort of become a way, but it hasn't. As regards to the protests um, in New York, that's an ongoing issue. It's, it's not going to go away. Ed, thank you very much for getting up early to, to speak to us. A fascinating conversation, and we'll be looking out for the campaign and for the results of the midterm elections. Thanks again. Many thanks. Let's move on now to Australia and the final result announced on Tuesday of the general elections, which were held some two weeks ago. Julia Gillard, the leader of the Labour Party, stays as Prime Minister after winning the backing of two key independent MPs, and she now leads the minority government with just one more seat than the Liberals. We're joined here by our resident Australian, Richard McGregor. Richard, how easy will it be for Gillard to govern? One seat majority doesn't sound, sound great. I think it's going to be very, very difficult, to be honest. She's got a very unsteady coalition, two rural independents, as you said, plus one green, all of whom are used to doing very pretty much what they want. Uh, I think the result is you'll get timid, cautious government, very hard for the government to get out ahead of the pack, if you like, uh, very internally focused, little room for diplomatic initiatives, and, of course, a Labour Party itself, which is really riven by the uh, leadership struggle. Miss Gillard took over from Kevin Rudd only two months before the election. So, you know, we, we might expect Australia to go back to the polls uh, after not too long. But, uh, as you say, Gillard had, hadn't been Prime Minister for very long. She'd only been for a couple of months after this sort of internal coup d'etat. Now, in some ways, she seems to me, as an outsider, she has the potential to to be quite an interesting figure. Do you think she has the potential to develop into a figure who's well-known not, not just in Australia but outside as well? We shall see, I guess. Um, I mean, she's an operator. She's highly competent, very articulate. Uh, she is Australia's first uh, woman prime minister, and that's a great thing. But, of course, she was put into the job by the backroom boys uh, quite ruthlessly. Uh, she didn't sort of get the job on her own, as it were. But we, we don't know whether she's got the policy creativity and initiative let alone the ability to manage this coalition uh, whom, uh, to whom she's made all sorts of promises uh, to get the sort of government's um, uh, uh, mojo going again, if you like. Now, if she actually manages to, to keep going and to govern, what, what will she attempt to do? What will her priorities be? The priorities are inward-looking, if you like. I mean, Australia, like many other Western countries, is having a backlash against immigration. That's an important one. Uh, resource management, water is an important one. Managing, paradoxically, um, the benefits of a booming economy is important in Australia because Australia is about to get a $50 billion dividend, I think, from trade with China and how that is spread around the country. That's a very important issue. And I think globally there's one very important issue that uh, people will be watching this new government over, and that's the mining tax. Australia really is at the cutting edge of global mining and global mining policy, and if they can push through this super profits tax, if you like, on mining companies in Australia, that could be copied all around the world. And that's one reason, I think, why mining companies really ran such a vociferous campaign against this about two months ago. OK, Richard, thank you very much indeed. Now to France and the million or so people who took to the streets on Tuesday in protest over the austerity measures planned by Nicolas Sarkozy's government, and in particular to express fury over plans to raise the age of retirement. Fiona Simon spoke to the FT's Paris correspondent Ben Hall earlier today and she started off by asking him why the raising of the pension age is such a controversial issue. 
Essentially, the unions feel that the reforms proposed by Nicolas Sarkozy, notably raising the retirement age from 60 to 62, are unfair because they would penalise manual workers and those who start work very early. And they also complain that France has one of the lowest employment rates amongst older workers and that essentially uh, if you make people work longer, essentially you will be consigning many of them to the unemployment lists. They also believe that the retirement age of 60 is, is what the French call an acquis social. It's like a social right, an essential achievement of François Mitterrand, the only socialist president in the, in the 1980s. And they think that these reforms to the retirement age planned by Nicolas Sarkozy are the thin end of a wedge, the, the beginning of the end of, uh, of the welfare state in France. I think there's a third reason as well. The French unions are tapping into a kind of much wider social discontent in France, a, a big sense of economic insecurity, which is perhaps more prevalent in France than in many other European countries for a whole variety of reasons. And we should remember that union membership is actually very low in France, uh, much lower than in the UK, for example. And this is a very good way for them of actually tapping into uh, a much wider issue that concerns the whole population and not just their members who are very concentrated in the public sector. Can France afford to maintain the pensions at their current level? And how bad is the state of the government finances? France has a deficit, will have a deficit in 2010 of 8% of uh, gross domestic product, so it's pretty bad. Their debt is 83% of GDP. They haven't run uh, a balanced budget in France since 1975. And public spending is 56% of GDP, which is the highest in the European Union. So, yes, the public finances are a bit precarious. France, like all other European countries, has, a, has an issue with rising longevity, which creates a problem for uh, pension spending. But actually, it's probably less serious in France than many other European countries, because France has one of the highest birth rates in Europe. That said, if the pension system is not reformed, it will build up an annual deficit of 42 billion euros by 2018. And that rises to 100 billion euros by 2050, which is about 4% of GDP. So it, so it is clearly unsustainable. President Sarkozy has actually made some small concessions to the pensions reforms. What concessions do you think that might be acceptable to the unions? The concessions that Mr Sarkozy made are actually bigger than they appeared at first sight. Um, the government says they are worth a billion euros a year. One of the employers' organisations say that essentially they will allow 20% of people to carry on retiring at 60. So they are quite sizable, and I think they will make the unions think carefully about how they want to proceed. I think it's inconceivable that Sarkozy will abandon this reform because uh, he has set so much store by it. His whole political identity is based on this idea that he is the president who dares um, unpopular reforms. So I think it's unlikely that he will back down uh, for political reasons and also for financial reasons. He can't afford to. The markets are watching this very, very closely. All will depend on how much further Sarkozy is willing to go. Sarkozy's approval ratings are, are very low at the moment, around a sort of 30% range. How well placed is the socialist opposition to capitalise on dissatisfaction with Sarkozy? The problem is that the socialists themselves are in a rather tricky situation here because although they, they claim they have an alternative, which is to fund um, the pension system or the shortfall in the pension system with large tax rises on, on the wealthy, on high earners, on, on businesses, on investment income, the numbers don't really stack up. Although they say they will reverse this pension reform if they are elected in the presidential election of 2012, nobody really believes them. Do you see Sarkozy surviving this particular political crisis? If he manages to squeeze this reform through with only minor concessions, 
he can use that as a way of burnishing his credentials as the as the reformer that he always pretended to be. If, on the other hand, he's forced into a corner, he's forced to back down, or there is a huge amount of disruption by union protests, then Mr Sarkozy will look a lot weaker. But I think, on balance, he will probably emerge stronger from this, as long as he doesn't make too many concessions which will frighten the financial markets and France's European partners. That was Fiona Simon talking to Ben Hall in Paris earlier today. Now to our final topic, British politics. David Cameron, the Prime Minister of Britain's, had both joy and great sadness in his personal life this summer. His wife gave birth to the Cameron's fourth child this summer, but this week the Prime Minister's father died. Meanwhile, the pressure in the political arena doesn't go away. The Cameron government's facing its first major scandal with growing pressure on Andy Coulson, the Prime Minister's press secretary and a former journalist himself, to resign. With me is Ben Fenton, the FT's media correspondent. Ben, it's a slightly complicated tale. Could you just start by explaining what what it's all about? Yeah, uh, this dates back uh, to about 2007 when two people, uh, Clive Goodman, the royal correspondent of the News of the World, and a private investigator by the name of Glenn Mulcair uh, went on trial charged with, with what's called phone hacking. They were convicted and both sentenced to jail terms of a few months after um, it was found that they had hacked into the voicemails of a, a number of people, uh, including um, royal servants. The House of Commons committee that looks after the media uh, conducted an investigation shortly thereafter at which Andy Coulson, who had resigned as news editor of the News of the World after the Goodman and Mulcair trial, despite saying that he had actually no knowledge of what they were doing, and he gave evidence to the committee, and the committee at the time were pretty unhappy about it, and in their report they, they made it clear that they had problems with some of his lack of recall of what had happened. The story sort of went away for a couple of years then until in 2009 the Guardian newspaper published allegations that in fact hundreds of people had had their phones hacked into, possibly even thousands were at risk of phone hacking and by reporters other than Clive Goodman at the News of the World, which obviously not only um, revived the scandal in broad terms, but it also made Mr Coulson look as though he had deceived the House of Commons Committee, which is a serious thing to do, especially as, in the meantime, he had, as you said earlier, become David Cameron's first in opposition and now in government, right-hand man in dealing with the media. Those stories in The Guardian trickled on for a few months but really didn't quite get traction. And then last week... The New York Times, which in common with The Guardian is, I would say, antipathetic to Mr Murdoch's media empire, um, in the case of The New York Times, because it's in competition directly with The Wall Street Journal in something of a life-or-death struggle, one might think. Uh, The New York Times quoted a News of the World reporter from that time saying that he had done uh, phone hacking, that other people knew about it, and he implied pretty strongly that Mr Coulson must have known about it, given his position. In the intervening few days, as Mr Coulson has steadfastly continued to state his position that he did not know anything about this, there's been further evidence. It's gone back into Parliament, and only today, Thursday, the main chamber of the House of Commons has voted to refer the matter to the Privileges and Standards Committee of the House of Commons, which is the most powerful committee of the House. And unlike the previous investigation, it has powers of subpoena over witnesses and is a pretty serious arena. And there's also talk of of further police investigations into the stuff in the New York Times. But, of course, the big question is, will they get Coulson's scalp? 
I think <laughs> the jury's out. It's more likely today than it was yesterday now that this has moved into this much more serious arena of, uh, of, the to- of this top parliamentary committee. Finally, I mean, on the politics of it, it strikes me as, as uh, you know, somebody who doesn't follow British politics as my main thing, that it still, still seems a bit reckless of David Cameron to have appointed Andy Coulson. I mean, even assuming that he believed Coulson's denials, and one has to assume that, uh, this was a man with a cloud over him and uh, who at, at least his judgment and his managerial skills must be in question. Wasn't it a big risk for Cameron to appoint Coulson? Well, if we go a little historic here, you remember that Tony Blair, when he arrived in Number 10 Downing Street, had as his equivalent of Mr Coulson one Alistair Campbell, former political editor of the Daily Mirror and, and probably in many ways an equally controversial figure in British politics and journalism. One can draw some parallels with risk-taking there. There are two significant differences, however, between the Blair Campbell relationship and the Cameron Coulson one. Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell knew each other from long association in the House of Commons. And David Cameron and Andy Coulson did not know each other for any great length of time before David Cameron appointed uh, Andy Coulson as his head of press uh, in opposition. There was a hiatus between the winning of the election and the appointment of Mr Coulson as the actual media head of Downing Street. And many people interpreted this as being unhappiness, both in high Conservative Party circles Uh, within the coalition with the Liberal Democrats and also with civil servants in the Cabinet Office and in Whitehall at having Mr Coulson, a very controversial figure, in a position of this kind. I mean, partly they remembered the experience of having Alistair Campbell and partly they were aware of the fact that Mr Coulson, and this is the second point, is not a political reporter like Alistair Campbell. He didn't understand the workings of the lobby in the same way. His job had always been uh, in the sort of show business side. He was a celebrity journalist and as a result he has always been much more likely to be involved in the seamier side of British journalism in what are known euphemistically uh, in Fleet Street as the dark arts. Ben, thank you very much. It's a suitably mysterious note on which to finish this week's edition. So that is it for this week. Thank you to Richard and Ben and Fiona Simon in the studio. Thanks to Ed Luce in Washington and Ben Hall in Paris. World Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.